Today we're going to talk about politics, which I know just saying that word in, the, in a room, right, it ri raises the level of tension, doesn't it? There are two things that we're not supposed to talk about when we're with family, religion and politics. So why not just talk about them both? I think there's a challenge when it comes to having these conversations, but the reality as Christians is we do live in our world, which means when our world is having political conversations, when our world is debating and fighting and talking about politics, Jesus has something to say about politics, something to say about how we treat one another, something to say about how we think about how we vote and how we talk about these things. What it also means, though, is as Christians, if God has called us to be countercultural, it means when we talk about those things, we do it differently. The way we talk about politics, the way we think about politics, the way we treat people who disagree with our political ideas, it's different than the rest of the world. And so what would it look like for us to have a kingdom mindset? To not think in terms of the right or the left, but think in terms of what does it mean to be a part of the kingdom of God? Now the challenge with this is that if we are thinking with a kingdom lens, Christians don't fit into a two-party mold. At times when we read the Scriptures, if we're honest about what the Scriptures say, at times the Bible sounds radically of the left. When it talks about subjects like racial reconciliation and the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed, it sounds like it's on one side. And at other moments, when we talk about subjects like marriage or sexuality, what we'll find is that the Bible often sounds like it's on the right. Which means, as Christians, when it comes to having a kingdom mindset, we can't find ourselves on the right or the left. We find ourselves somewhere in the middle, middle politically homeless, caring about race and oppression and poverty, sexuality, marriage, human life. All of them important to us as followers of Jesus. One pastor I listened to preach, a pastor by the name of Albert Tate, said... We should vote with trembling hands. We should go from the voting booth to the confession booth. Understanding, right, there is a weight and a responsibility, a privilege that we have as Christians in the United States of America to have the opportunity to vote, to make our voice heard, yet because of the complexity and the nuance and the challenge, right, he understands that you can be convicted that of who you should vote for, yet not have your conscience eased because feeling like there is not an easy answer. And so he said, you should quickly go from one to the other to know that you confess that you don't have all the answers. And so here's what I want to do right up front as we start this new series. I'm going to put my email up on the screen. And so if you, if you right now, right now is a good opportunity. If you want to get out your phone, you can start the email that says, all right, dear RJ, I can't believe you're so blank. And then you fill in the opposite of whatever you are. Um, I'm just, I'm just kidding. You can actually email Joe. That would be much more better. Um, but here's, here, now here's why I joke about that. Because if we do this right, if we understand that as Christians in the kingdom of God, we don't really fit into a political party, that means at the end of this, every single one of you, if you closely identify with a political party, you're going to feel like I disagree with you. And I'm okay with that um, because I'm not here to have e easy conversations. We're going to talk about some difficult things because the Bible has some things to say about the hard truths of what it means to follow Jesus. And so I'm not here to persuade you to change political affiliations or parties or any of that, but I am here to think and talk about how do we treat other people. Because there is no question, no matter what your political affiliation, that when it comes to politics, our world doesn't know how to treat other human beings. 
We've lost seeing the humanity in other people, people who are made in the image of God. And so today we're beginning a series called The Kingdom Minority. Because treating other people as though they are children of God, as though they were created in the image of God, is the minority opinion. It's not of the right. It's not of the left. But to be a part of the kingdom of God means to treat people differently. Now, one of the ways we have talked about how to treat other people and how to think about how we treat one another is with this question that Joe's asked a number of times. The question is, what does love require? I believe if we began asking that question when it came to politics, it would disrupt everything about the way we think and talk about politics. It would challenge how you think about who are you going to vote for. It would challenge the way you think about certain political policies. It would change how you treat people when you have those political conversations. It would change how you treat your enemies, how, how you treat those who disagree with you. If you ask that question, what does love require? It changes the way we think about politics. In Micah chapter 6, the prophet writes these words, and he actually helps define the answer to that question, what does love require, when he says it this way, and what does the Lord require of you? Answering, right, what does love require? He says this, to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. What if that was what it meant to be a part of the kingdom minority, to have a mindset shaped by Jesus? What if the way we looked at the world was shaped by humility, justice, and mercy? A world where you treated other people as better than yourself. Maybe even as knowing more than you do. Imagine a world where you defended the cause of those who couldn't defend themselves, regardless of their race, their age, their political affiliation. A world where disagreeing with people didn't mean you cancel them out of your life, but instead fought to maintain relationships. If that happened, that would be countercultural. That would be what it means to be a church, to be a light in the darkness. Imagine a church that was thought of as the one place in our world where everywhere else is divided, that in that place people could be united by Jesus, regardless of what they believe about politics. Imagine the appeal in the poll to be a part of a community that could disagree yet could love one another like Jesus. If you could open your Bibles to the book of Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is going to talk about humility, and I believe that this can help us significantly when we think about how we treat one another. And so we're going to spend time today right, in using that framework from Micah 6, talking about what does it mean to walk humbly with our God. So if you turn to Philippians chapter 2, and as you turn there, I want you to think about this question. What would you do if the most important person walked into this room? Now, I'll let you define the most important person, um, however, whatever works for you. And so if you want to define that person as maybe an expert in your field, maybe they're the most important because they have a certain amount of money or power or influence. Maybe it's the number of subscribers they have on YouTube. Like whatever works for you to define an important person, if they showed up in the same room as you, how would you act differently? How would the people around you respond? How would most people respond? Now, it's an important question because when we're talking about humility, that is the way the scriptures are going to challenge us to treat other people as though they are more important than ourselves. And so if the most important person walks into the room, what most of us would do, if they're the expert in your field, what you're going to do is you're probably not going to tell them all you know about what you do. You're going to probably try to listen to what they know. 
Right? If they're the expert, you're going to seek to listen first, to learn, to understand before you seek to convince themselves how smart you are. If they show up into the room and it's really early in the morning and, and right, they, they need some coffee, you're probably not going to tell them, hey, can you run to Starbucks and get my venti iced latte? No, you're going to say, what can I get for you? Right? Because your attitude, they're the most important, so you're going to say, how can I serve you? How can I help you? What can I do for you? If they begin to share their life story and begin to share about their past and their upbringing, their hurts, their pains, if they're the most important person in the room, what you're going to do is you're not going to be looking for how do you poke holes in their story, how do you shame them for the things that happened and the things that they regret. You're going to listen and, and try to better understand what makes them them. That's what it means to treat them as though they were the most important person in the room. And so the Apostle Paul is going to describe that, that behavior, that attitude, when it comes to the way we treat each other. And he says all of that is because we're followers of Jesus, because we're a part of the kingdom of God. So beginning in chapter 2, starting in verse 1, he says this, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ— no, it's, he starts out, it's a little rhetorical here, because if, you're, if you are a follower of Jesus, he, Paul understands, yes, you have encouragement from being united with Christ. There's no question about that. So if you have encouragement from being united with Christ, which you do, if any comfort from his love, again, you do. Right? You're comforted because of the love, the grace, the forgiveness of Jesus. If any fellowship with the Holy Spirit, he, again, rhetorical, he says, you as a follower of Jesus, you have a relationship with the Holy Spirit, if there's any tenderness, if there's any compassion. In other words, if God has done something in you that changes the way you think and feel about other people. He says, if all of those happen, which they will as you follow Jesus. He says, then this, make my joy complete. In other words, he, said, you know what? he says, if you are a follower of Jesus, if all of these things are happening in your life, he says, what would really make me happy is this. He says, by being like-minded— now, now, that's funny, right? Because, like, has Paul ever even met Christians before? Like, they're not like-minded about anything, except for maybe that they don't agree on anything. And so, so Paul says, though, I, w I wish that you'd be like-minded. Like, imagine if we were one in spirit and one in mind when it came to the big things in life. Political things, divisive things, things like abortion and black lives and sexuality and abuse. The problem, though, is that in humanity, we seem to take these important things and let them divide. Let them separate. And Paul says, no, if only you as the followers of Jesus could have the same mindset of be like-minded. And he continues, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. In other words, have the same mindset and being given the same mission as you follow Jesus. And then verse 3, he, he's understanding here as we go that people aren't like-minded. They don't have the same mindset. They're not one in spirit and mission, although they should be. And so in verse 3, he begins to give a diagnostic, kind of begins to pull out and show them, all right, here's the problem. Here's what needs to change. He says this in verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, 
But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now this phrase he he uses to help start this corrective in verse 3 is very important when he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Now that phrase comes from, from the Greek, one Greek word actually, that could probably best be translated as a spirit of rivalry. So it's better translated when Paul says, do nothing out of a spirit of rivalry. So not just being selfish. He's not saying, don't just think about yourself. He's actually saying, um, this is about a thoughtless ambition for your side. A thoughtless ambition, not an ambition for what's good, not an ambition for people, but an ambition so that your side wins. It's the attitude that defaults to us versus them. It's two groups polarizing themselves so they can only see what's wrong in the other side. The tendency to divide into us versus them, educated and uneducated, liberal and conservative, wealthy and poor. That sound familiar? So Paul says this selfish ambition, the spirit of rivalry, isn't ambitious for the kingdom. Isn't even ambitious for truth or justice or what's good. It's ambitious for your side. And now if you hear me say that and immediately what comes to mind is a group of people who do that, like those liberals, those conservatives, well, you're probably a part of a group on the opposite side doing the same thing, right? We all find ourselves doing that, finding ourselves in groups, becoming echo chambers that can only see things one way. And so Paul says this doesn't work in the kingdom of God. This doesn't work in the church. It's not good for us. See, humility that Jesus wants us to walk in isn't seeking ambition for your group or your party or your people. It's seeking ambition for people. And then he uses this other phrase, not, do not, nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Vain conceit, again, is another interesting word. It's the word we use for glory. So when we, talk, when we say, use a phrase like glory to God, what we mean is we want fame and we want honor and we want the attention to go to Jesus. Right? We want to shine the spotlight on Jesus. And so when Paul is saying do nothing out of vain conceit, it's a very, it's a very counter way of thinking about politics because politics doesn't shine the light on somebody else, right? It shines the light on self. And so when Paul here is talking about humility, he's saying do nothing out of having a hunger for your own glory. Don't live in such a way that you are trying to think about yourself first. Don't live primarily seeking your own good, your own fame, your own honor. But seek the benefit of another person. I think one of the biggest challenges to why you and I struggle with this is because we're insecure about the source of our own worth. And so we engage in political conversations and political debates. We engage in all kinds of areas of our life, our work, our relationships, our friends. And because we lack worth, we think, what can I do so that I have the glory for myself? Because if I have some kind of attention, if I have some kind of validation, that it makes me feel like my words matter, like my thoughts matter. And so we'll say something, we'll post something, we'll make a comment. And we get upset then when people disagree with us. Why? Because it seems to somehow invalidate our worth. It's not about the idea, actually. It's about our worth. We'll even do this with actually good things. Like some of us will do this. We will actually want to stand up for truth. 
but we'll do it because of how it makes us look. And so we're, so we're, we're going to stand up for, 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 for the police officers who are being hurt because of how it makes us look. We're going to put a black square on our profile because we're making a stand for black lives, not for other people, but for our own glory. So Paul says that's, that's not what it's about. It's not about you signaling your own worth. It's about you being secure of the source of your worth and using that for other people. This is why politici- politicians, the conversations are so dangerous. Because the fear isn't being opposed or being disliked or being called b- bad. The fear is my ideas not being worth anything. This is also why the days after an ele- election are so toxic. Because an entire group of people feels like their idea and their vote didn't matter. Because it's tied to worth. And so what if we lived in a way that was counter to seeking hunger for our own glory, counter to having this spirit of rivalry? Now here's the problem, though, with taking the mindset of Jesus when it comes to politics. The thing that makes it so challenging. Jesus cares more about our righteousness than our rightness. Jesus cares more about where you stand with him than you being right. This word, let me unpack that for a minute, because that word righteousness, it's essentially saying we're good. Right? Righteousness means you are good with God. Like you and God, there's nothing that stands between you, nothing separating you. It also means that with you and your neighbor and your coworker, your classmates, it means there's nothing between you. Jesus cares more about your righteousness than whether you've done all the right things and said all the right things. That's why he goes to the cross, because he's concerned with making sure that nothing that stands between you and him. And then as you live your life, he wants the same thing for you and your neighbor, that there's not something between you, something separating you and dividing you and polarizing you. You want, you want to know if you're thinking in a mindset of righteousness first or rightness first? Ask yourself the question, whose rights am I more concerned about, theirs or mine? Because if you are more concerned about righteousness, you might, be, you might ask yourself, what can I do for their rights? For their rights because they look different than me. Their rights because, because they can't speak for themselves. They can't defend themselves. And I'm not saying that your rights don't matter, but humility means putting another's rights ahead of your own. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It means thinking of yourself less. Changing the order, the priority. Now, rightness, on the other hand, that's just about winning an argument. It's about being right. The problem is you can win a lot of arguments and lose a lot of friends. And so the question you might need to ask yourself is, am I going to make a stand for truth and lose influence? Or am I going to earn influence and have an opportunity to speak truth? See, because so often in the church, what we'll do is we're saying, we're just making a stand for truth, when in reality, we're just being jerks. And so what if we lived in humility? That's what Jesus does. When Paul says, imitate Christ, Jesus seeks your righteousness. You did the wrong thing. You said the wrong thing. There's things that you regret, things like sin wreaks havoc 
in our world. Yet Jesus, although he did nothing wrong, offered himself. Jesus does something that changes the glory-seeking, side-taking version of ourselves. He doesn't use it to his own advantage. In fact, if anything, he takes his position, his power, and his influence, and he uses it for the advantage of another person. Despite being more powerful than death itself, despite the reality that he could come down from the cross, he stays there, allowing himself to die because you're worth it. Because you're worth it to him. And so what if in our relationships we had the same mindset? What if we listened more than we spoke? What if in our relationships, humility meant that we, uh, we would consider another person's ideas to be more important than our own? That it was more important to listen to another person's ideas than to get our own point across? Even when we're right, it means listening and understanding not just the belief, but the story behind the belief, why they believe what they believe, the history of their life that got them to the point of where they're at. It means we ask questions more than we just give answers. Jesus often, in the midst of being right, in the midst of being innocent, he kept his mouth shut. Now, I'm not suggesting there's never a time and a place to speak up. In fact, next week we're going to be talking about what does it mean to seek justice. Right? So there is a time and a place where this becomes incredibly, incredibly important. But I also believe in the age of the internet, most of us default to speaking before listening. And so what if we learn to listen more than we speak? Because sometimes we need to listen first. And then what if we used our positions to serve instead of to take advantage? Or this is what Paul says that Jesus does in humility. He did not consider himself equal with God. Even though he was God, even though he is God, he took on the nature of a servant. Jesus had the authority and power that was rightfully his. If Jesus is thinking about his rights in that moment, he doesn't have to die. Yet he used it to serve the people who needed it the most. You have authority, power, and influence. And maybe you don't think about it that way, but you do. You have authority, power, and influence. We all do. We all, in our own spheres, maybe it's in your work, maybe it's in your school, maybe it's in your family, you have influence. Some of that is given to you for no other reason than being born in the United States. As being a citizen of the United States, right, you have influence when you cast a vote. Some of that just comes simply because of where you were born. Some of your influence comes from the way your parents raised you. Some of it comes from your hard work, your effort. Some of it comes from the way you speak or the way you look. As a pastor, I have certain influence and authority that comes with my position, that I can stand up on stage here and I can speak and I can share things, that not everybody gets the opportunity to do that. In my family, I have certain authority and influence in my own family that somebody who is not the father to my children can't have that same authority and influence over my family, that I have that, that no one else does. So the question is, how do you use that? See, I think this is one of the areas where we could completely change the conversations in politics. I think this is one of the areas where the spirit of rivalry has created more tension, where Christians can step into the gap and transcend the conversation. Right? One of these words that is filled with tension is this, this idea of privilege. Some of you may have heard this word. Some of you may have argued over this word 
Now, the reason that this word becomes so challenging to people is because of this idea, the spirit of rivalry. Because immediately what happens is we, we divide into right and left, right and left, Republicans and Democrats, or any other version of categories you want to call it. And so immediately what, what will happen is people will say, oh, and we, want, we want justice and we want equality and we want to fight for these things. And another group is saying is, is you're making me feel guilty for my race and what about my hard work and what about this? Meanwhile, what, what is happening is, is that just speaking past one another. Nobody actually hearing what the other person says. But what if as Christians we could transcend this conversation? What if we could step outside of the bubbles and say, what does Jesus say? Jesus tells a story uh, uh, called the parable of the talents. And when Jesus tells this story, he said one, one person has this much, another person has more, and another person has even more than both of them. And Jesus uses this story to say all of these individuals have opportunities and influence and gifts that not everybody has. And the point of Jesus' story isn't to make people feel guilty for what they have, but to hold them accountable for what they do with what they have. What if as Christians we change the debate? What if we stop debating who does or doesn't have privilege? What if we just started stewarding our own? Stop debating who has privilege and start stewarding yours. You have influence. Use it. You have influence in your home. You have influence in your workplace, in your community. Use your influence for the advantage of another person. Whether that's in your home, your community, as a citizen, as a Christian, as a leader, as a business owner, as a black man, as a white woman, whatever it is, what if we said, how do I use this for the benefit of another person? What would that do? That would take people on the right and people on the left and said, I, I can get behind that. I can believe in that. I can fight for that. And what if we then use the tool of empathy? instead of the weapon of shame. See, what politics loves to do is they love to shame other people. The problem is shame doesn't change anyone. Shame just isolates further and further. What if instead, though, we empathized? Because if we believed another person was the most important person in the room, we wouldn't be seeking to shame them. We would be seeking to understand them, seeking to put ourselves in their shoes to understand their hurts and their pains and their story. This is the God we have, right? We don't believe in a God who's this ethereal idea who is out there, who is somewhere else, but he's a God who comes in our midst, who, who took on the very nature of a servant, who, who came in human likeness. Why? He felt what we felt. He was hungry. He laughed. He cried. He was in pain. He suffered. That's why Hebrews 4 says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. Because when Jesus sees something different, he doesn't step away, he moves closer. When Jesus sees sin, he doesn't flee from it, he actually meets the sinner. He meets us in order to give himself to us. And he knows exactly what it's like. He knows what it's like to feel lost. He knows what it's like to lose friends. He knows what it's like to be angry at injustice, to be heartbroken over loss, to be grieved by sin. And so because of that, he does the only thing that love requires him to do, to give himself. So that by his death, he might put to death 
the things that are against us. And that by his resurrection, he might give victory in the face of defeat. It's what makes us a part of this kingdom minority. And what if we then lived with that same mindset, giving of ourself for the people around us? Let me pray, and we'll prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Jesus, we thank you that you are a God who doesn't run from our pain or suffering or sin, but a God who comes to us. A God who uses his authority and his power and his influence to give to us. Thank you for being a God who seeks our righteousness, that seeks our righteousness by sacrifice, that by your death, by your resurrection, that you would declare us worthy. And Jesus, in this divided and broken world, it's so easy to look around and see all the problems out there, but Jesus, we know a lot of those, when we look at our own heart, a lot of them are in here too. And so Jesus, we pray that you would speak to us in these moments, that you would remind us of our own sin, that you would remind us of those moments where we have this ambition and the spirit of rivalry, that you would remind us of the pridefulness and arrogance, that you would remind us of moments where we seek our own glory instead of yours, that you would remind us of the times where we took advantage of other people instead of used our own influence for their advantage. Jesus, show us our sins in these moments as we confess before you promise to us is that there is nothing that will separate us from his love. There is no sin, no wrongdoing, no suffering in this world that can separate us from the love of Jesus. Your sins are forgiven in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.